Would you turn with me your Bibles to Romans chapter 15 as we continue our study through the book of Romans. We are in verse 22 of chapter 15. Um, This is the second to last inning in this game that we've been playing. Uh, We're finishing up the book of Romans next week as we'll look at chapter 16. But today we want to look at the, the final part of chapter 15 where he talks about what I term living generously. And if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading in verse 22? Actually, to kind of set the tone in verse 20, you recall from last week, Paul said, it is always my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Picking that theme up in verse 22, he continues, this is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia, which refers to Greece essentially, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have to share in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ." I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would also help us to understand the passion and the purpose and the focus of Paul's heart as he really set an example for us how we should pursue after you. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're like most people, at some time or another, you've kind of wished you could forecast or at least have a glimpse into what the future held. That whole series, the trilogy of movies, you know, Back to the Future movies, really kind of tapped into this kind of thing in ourselves that says, boy, what would it be like to be able to actually get in front of life's events and to prepare my life in a way so that I could, uh, you know, effectively negotiate it. The problem is, is that we may not always want to know what the future holds. It's like the guy who went to the doctor one day and, and the doctor did his physical exam and afterwards sat him down and he says, well, I have some good news and I have some, uh, or excuse me, I have some bad news and I have some even worse news. And he said, well, what's the bad news? He said, well, uh, by looking at your test, you only have 24 hours to live. And he says, oh, that's terrible. What's even worse than that? Well, I got the test back yesterday. So, you know, sometimes we assume that we have a grip on the future, and even when we're dealing with what we think is reliable information, uh, you know, like stock forecasts and things of that nature, we often end up getting some different results because, as we talked about last week, that's why God, they call it the future. We don't know what it holds. 
And sometimes I think we're better off not knowing. In fact, Solomon was the one who said in Proverbs 16, 9, he says, in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Or as we sometimes shorten it up, man proposes, but God disposes. I found some of the best ideas I've ever had, God has flushed. So as John Lennon once quipped, very interestingly, kind of ironically even, he said, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. And as he was walking back to his apartment in the Dakota one night, a man came up and shot him to death in the street. He was making other plans. Life just overtook him in ways, or I should say death did, in ways he hadn't anticipated. But that's not to say that God doesn't at the same time give us kind of some broad outlines, a kind of a general sense of what he intends for your life and for my life. Not just in the bigger sense, certainly we know that we have the Bible which tells us both the beginning of the story as well as the end of the story, that there are many of us who stress about where the world is going, where the nation is going, and we oftentimes forget that God has already preordained what's going to happen. He says that it all is going to fall apart, and so when I see it falling apart, I say, well, God's keeping his word, And I also know that it's only until the last Trump is elected that we have to worry about these kind of things. So the simple fact is that God says in the end he is coming back and he's going to set up his reign upon the earth and we are going to live and reign with him. No worries, okay? God is in control. But even when he gets down more specifically, sometimes he tells you the details about your life and my life. In fact, to the Apostle Paul, he five times tells us, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. That had a very clear specification to it. In fact, as he opened his letter to the Romans, we studied in verse 1, he said, I am Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. Essentially, that became Paul's operating rubric. That was how he focused the attention of his life and focused his time, his money, his energy, his, all of his resources militated around those things that, as I would summarize, essentially he said he was God's servant, serving God's people for God's glory. And when we have that orientation to life, what the consequence is is what I call generous living. We've been generously. Because when we realize I'm God's servant, it's not about me, it's about what he wants. When I realize that I'm called to serve God's people in whatever way that he will give me the opportunity and the ability to do, and when I realize that the ultimate goal is that God becomes glorified, then I find that there follows naturally a generosity of heart, a generousness towards my time a generous towards my money, a a generousness towards my energy. It's just something that you find flows out of you. Somebody doesn't have to sit there and, and be your nanny telling you, you have to do this and you have to do that. You just become wide open to the opportunities because I begin to realize I am God's servant. I'm called to serve God's people in a way that brings glory to him. Generosity is a natural consequence. But Paul also understood within this focus of his life that there were hardships that were going to be part of that mission. 
In fact, at his conversion, he is told. I mean, you ever wish somebody would give you a word from the Lord? If I were Paul, I probably would have said to Agabus, I mean to uh, Ananias, can we just not go any further? There's sometimes you don't want to know because he's given a very specific word about his future. And it goes like this. You are my chosen instrument. All right, praise God, I've been chosen by God. I am God's tool to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Wow, glorious ministry. I can imagine already he was beginning to think about the handouts, the print-ups, the posters, the TV ads, the television contract. I'm going to go out, I'm going to be this, have this amazing celebrity-level uh, ministry. And if he would have just stopped there, it would have been great. But Ananias had to keep on talking. And he adds this one last phrase, and I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. Oh, stink. <laughs> how much you must suffer. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. I don't want to sign up for this army. You know, I want to sign up for the one with the condos. But later on in the Corinthians, he tells him how literally this becomes fulfilled in his life. He says this, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. My grandson yesterday hit me with his little foam sword really hard, and it hurt. <laughs> I don't think they were using foam sticks, okay? <laughs> 40 times, 40 lashes, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And then he adds, constantly on the move, I've been in danger of rivers, bandits, my own countrymen, from Gentiles in the city, in the country, at sea, from false brothers. And I have labored and toiled and gone without sleep. I have known hunger, thirst, cold, and nakedness. You know, I don't know how you read that, but I see suffering in all of that. And he says, I'm going to show you that that suffering is not a sign that you missed my call. It's going to be the validation that you're going to get that you're actually where I want you to be. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? When something hurts, when pain comes into your life, when disappointment, loss comes in your life, the first response is, what did I do wrong and how can I avoid this ever happening ever again in my life? Or we complain, God, why did you let this happen? We have to understand that all that live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul said, will suffer, and he said even persecution. So that we shouldn't act, Peter said, as if something strange has happened to us. Paul wasn't alone in that, in that suffering. In fact, Jesus warned us, didn't he, in Matthew 16, 24, he says, if, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The New Living Translation says he must forsake his selfish ambitions and follow me. That that becomes a reality, that if I'm going to follow him, there's going to be something that's going to be taken from me, and there's also something that has to be taken up. As a young Christian, we used to always hear about walking the way of the cross. And the idea is that if I'm a disciple, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I am, I am letting go of something that I might take something else on. And it's interesting when you think about the image of carrying a cross. A cross was not an easy burden. Just the transit bar itself is something that 
Jesus only carried that crossbar that he was hung in. The upright was usually permanently set in place. Oftentimes they just simply used a tree and then they hung you on a crossbar uh, on the transit bar. But that alone could weigh 80 pounds. I mean, think in terms of a railroad uh, rail. You know, you're talking about this piece of timber that's heavy and you can't carry anything else if you carry it. That's the first thing we notice, that if I'm going to carry my cross, it means that I have to lay down all the other accoutrements and things that I've kind of picked up along the way. There are things that have to be let go because I do not have the strength to carry both, but also it requires a focus and a concentration that I can't be looking to the left, I can't be looking to the right, I have to stay fixed upon the goal. And that's why Jesus said if any man puts his hand to the plow and looks back, he's not worthy. Well, we would understand from a farmer's perspective, not only would he make terribly crooked and meandering furrows, but more importantly, he would just simply never reach the goal that he wants. Well, Jesus said you have to understand that if you're going to be my follower, that's what is incumbent in all this. And as many have observed, this is how God works. As there's an anonymous poet who once said, and I just paraphrase it very quickly, he said, when God wants to mold a man, watch his ways. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him. In other words, this studied saint looked back and said, when you look at how God prepares a man or a woman for some work he wants to do, it isn't by pampering them and fattening them up and robing them in wonderful things and preparing them for a life of celebrity. It's not a life of upward mobility. It's often a life of downward mobility. In fact, Oswald Chambers put it this way. He says, God gives us a vision and then he takes us down to the valley to batter us into the shape of that vision until we get to the point where we, he can trust us with the reality of that vision. That he batters us until we can be shaped into something that can be trusted to carry the vision out. I think how strange these words sound in our day in what, what I call a, a crossless Christianity. We live in an age where the Christian life is portrayed as something that's always up and positive and energetic, and we find that some of the biggest names now become even blurred in the celebrity world so that they walk and live and hang out with the greatest uh, known actors and performers and reality TV people, and we're just all enamored and all at Twitter as we read about them on Twitter and on Facebook, and on Instagram, and we see that, and we're given this idea that if you know Jesus, it's going to be evident because you have that winning smile. And Paul, in the history of the church, and other great men like Oswald Sanders or Oswald Chambers or so on, let's go on, say you have to understand that if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to begin by denying self. <laughs> There's my first issue. Everything in me doesn't want to deny myself. I woke up this morning, and I hate to confess this to you, I was thinking about me, not you. You know? I was thinking about my aches and pains and the need for that divine refreshment called caffeine. You know? Holy Spirit moves in many ways, and caffeine happens to be one of them. And simply, you find yourself oriented towards that. And is it not a battle to lift your eyes off your own self, even your own shoelaces, and look around you and say, there are others that I should be concerning myself with. 
Now, if you're a mom with preschoolers, you don't have a choice. They do that for you anyway. But the simple reality is that we live in an, an era in which somehow the idea of being a Christian without ever having to carry the cross, in fact, even to the point that if the theology and the morality of the Bible contradicts what someone wants to do, then we amend Scripture or we reduce it to an ancillary text that we don't really have to take seriously. In fact, if you take those points seriously to the point where you actually talk about them, you are so unloving. And suddenly you end up with this aberrant hybridization of Christianity that may be able to to run on multiple fuels, but none of them is the Holy Spirit. And they may give you great mileage in this world, but you won't find yourself journeying to any place you want to be. Because God said there's only one fuel, and that's the Holy Spirit, and He also not, not only is the Holy Spirit, but He has another name. He's the Spirit of truth. And He becomes concerned about truth. Well, in a crossless Christianity, truth becomes negotiable. Its prophet is a man named Pilate who simply said, what is truth? And that's the kind of thing you find increasingly spreading in the church today and in the world today. But interesting, as Paul comes to the close of this letter, he reveals that he's also coming to the close of his ministry in the Greek world. When he says, but now there is no place for me to work in these regions. Now, this is kind of interesting because here Paul is really at the, at the pinnacle of his ministry effectiveness. He has planted churches all over the Greek world, and they are growing and thriving and multiplying from places like Ephesus. Not only are thousands getting saved, but they're planting churches in Philadelphia, Colossia, Laodicea, all around that region, churches are popping up. Philippi is thriving. Corinth is amazing what God is doing there. He is at the pinnacle of his career and he says, but I have really come to the end of my effectiveness in this place. I have no more place to serve. He's not saying that everybody had been reached, but he says, I've played my part and I know what my part is and now it's time for me to turn that over to others and find new territory. Paul's thoughts were not on retirement, but rather his thoughts were simply, what's next? Where has the gospel not yet been preached? You see, Paul was, in our parlance, a pioneer. He went to the place where nobody else had yet been. And it appears that he simply followed what I would call his sanctified heart. You know what I mean by a sanctified heart? In Psalm uh, 37, 4, the, the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's interesting. Most of us say, well, wow, God's going to give me my, the desires of my heart. But the, but the caveat here is, are you delighting in God first? Is your source of joy and fulfillment in God? Is His glory your primary motive? If your desire for glorifying God is the primary driver of your life, guess what? He's going to give you just what you want. He's going to empower you to glorify Him. And Paul said he discovered that sometimes that comes through life, sometimes that comes through death. 
Sometimes that comes through sickness, and sometimes that comes through health. Sometimes that comes from financial success, and sometimes that comes through financial disaster. You see, the whole point is that God will give me the desire of my heart if the desire of my heart is to desire his heart, or as Milo and the Favor put it so many years in a song that I really liked, he said, pleasing you pleases me. If the pleasure of my life is to please God, then God says, I will give you those things that will bring you great pleasure because your pleasure is in pleasing me. And so Paul, is in his sanctified heart, says, I'm looking around, as he said, to that place where the gospel had never been preached, where Christ was not known, rather than building on somebody else's foundation. Now, I don't criticize someone who builds on somebody else's foundation because some people are called to build on existing foundations. That's not Paul's point. But he said, for me to do that would not be faithful to what God had called me to. And so he said, since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. In other words, Paul says, I've heard about what God's doing in Rome for decades, and I've just yearned to be able just to experience what God is doing there, but I'm just coming for a visit. In fact, the text seems to indicate, many scholars say, that he's actually saying, I'm going to give you the opportunity to sponsor me for mission work in Spain. Sponsor is a code word for give me money. <laughs> that you can be able to send me on to, to do this work. And it's ironic because historically we find that in later centuries, the church in Rome in the second, third, and fourth century became known around the world for the church with the greatest finances which they sent into missionary works all over the world, much like America has been honored to do through the centuries. That out of their prosperity, they were able to bless others. But in Paul's day, Spain, or as they called it, Hispania, was considered the end of the earth. Literally, the words of Strabo, the, the, the map maker, the Roman map maker of that time, a contemporary of Paul's, he called it the end of the earth. I mean, that was the end of the Mediterranean, and beyond that was a great Atlantic, and nobody knew what was beyond that other than scary, monstrous things like, well, anyway, I won't give an example. But uh, essentially, <laughs> I'm trying to learn self-control. But, uh, but Paul says, that's what I really want. That's the passion of my heart. And then he throws in this contraction. He says, but, but before I do that, I have to go to Jerusalem. Before Rome or Spain, he had to take care of business in Jerusalem. And that in itself was a journey that was far more threatening to Paul than either the wickedness of Rome or the wildness of Spain. Because Paul was hated by the Jews probably more than any other man in his day. They considered him a heretic and a traitor and worthy of death. And with regards to that death, they were very prepared to deliver him to death at the first and earliest opportunity that should befall them. Now, I sometimes try to put myself in, in kind of that frame of mind and think, what would it be like to walk into a situation where when soon as people hear your name, immediately your life is in imminent danger? You know that you're immediately the prey of someone who wants to harm you. And it was only slightly better 
between Paul and the Christians in Jerusalem. As James went on to inform him in Acts chapter 21, James, the elder of the church of Jerusalem, said to him, Many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. Uh, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, which was not true, telling them not to circumcise their children, which was not true, or to live according to our customs. Not true. He never told the Jews that. He told the Gentiles that they didn't have to. So these were false accusations by people who failed to make important, some, even though sometimes they are subtle distinctions. But indeed, shortly after Paul arrives, we read in Acts that he is assaulted, he's plotted against, there's an attempt to murder him, he's arrested, eventually he's imprisoned and ends up being in prison for four years. And in the end, we know he made it to Rome, but not as a not as a missionary, but rather as a prisoner. So it's not surprising that prior to Paul leaving Philippi, in his letter to the Romans, ask them to pray for him. He says, I urge you in verse 30 to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints who are there. Those are his prayer requests. So we ask the question, or I think at least we should ask the question, why in the world did he go? The question kind of begs itself. Why not avoid the danger and go directly to Rome and then on to Spain? Why? Well, ostensibly we know that the Macedonians had come up with an idea. Paul tells us in Corinthians it was their idea on hearing about the sufferings of the church in Jerusalem and their extreme poverty and, and hardships. They said, why don't we take up a collection to help minister to their material needs. So all of chapter 8 and chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians is all about the details of taking this collection. Paul's concerned that when they come to collect from the various churches, they won't be prepared or people will take an attitude that they, they don't really want to do it. They made promises and now they don't want to keep them and all this kind of dynamics are going on. And he reminds them that God loves a cheerful giver, so give cheerfully and so forth. And this is incumbent upon Paul. And he says, I am going to make sure, number one, that it gets taken care of properly. But secondly, that it's also something that's done acceptably to the church. So that when we analyze it, really we find that there are three reasons behind Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Number one, the practical necessity that faced the Jews Number two, an effort to promote unity amongst the Jews and the Gentiles. And number three, he says to pay a debt that they owed to the believers in Jerusalem. Let me kind of expand those a little bit, if you don't mind. And if you do. <laughs> in verse 25, he begins by talking about the issue of practical necessity. He says, to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church, the mother church of Christianity, if you will, was a deeply impoverished church at this moment in time. 
And because of persecution, many had been martyred. We read in Acts about the martyrdom of, of James and of Stephen and, and many others, certainly. Paul himself had a hand in that persecution and that martyrdom. Many others had been forced to flee and became refugees around the Greek world because it wasn't safe for them to continue to live in Jerusalem and eventually Judea. But there was also those who stayed behind, and they were subject to ostracism. Many of them were kicked out of the synagogues, and to be kicked out of the synagogue wasn't like today. In other words, to be in a synagogue meant that you were part of that community. This was a generational thing, but it was also an issue of identity. Your family and everything about it was noted based upon where you went to synagogue, so that Paul himself was a rabbi, we believe, of what was called the synagogue of the libertines or the freemen. It was made up of Rome, Jew, slaves who had been set free and had become Roman citizens, and all that kind of identified with the life experience of the apostle Paul, and they had this in common. It's very possible that their services were in two languages, both Hebrew and in Greek. And so these guys not only worshiped together, but they were also intermarried together and they shared occupations together so that as it was then, so it is today in many parts of the Asian world that if you convert to Christianity, you not only are rejecting the gods of your forefathers and therefore neglecting to worship them and their gods, and give them the due that they deserve in the afterlife. But you also become cut off relationally. If you're a woman or a man, no one will marry you. So you're embracing a life of singleness. If you are working, you will be deprived of your employment because almost every job was a family profession that was connected to other families. Now you have no family, no prospects for one. You have no source of employment. And what follows very quickly at that is serious economic crises. You are socially and economically cut off. Initially, the church responded, we read in Acts chapter 2, by selling their possessions and goods, and they gave to anyone as he had need. They literally sold off everything they had, and just as a natural expression of generosity, gave as people had need because they couldn't just stand back and watch people starve. But once those resources were gone, a deep poverty began to settle in over the church. So Paul and the other leaders really recalling the words of Jesus, knew that they had to respond. In fact, in Matthew 25, Jesus said to them and to us, he said, when the Son of Man comes, he will say, come you who are blessed of my Father and take your inheritance and the kingdom prepare for you. And then he adds why they are being so blessed. He says, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. And I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And he goes on, he says, Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. 
Now, some point out saying, well, Jesus' brothers in that context would be the Jewish people, so therefore we have an obligation to the Jewish people. And I don't totally disagree, but I don't think it's limited to them. I think it even has application to the world in which we live. And the reason I say that is because what we find that James later on would say, as the elder of the church in Jerusalem, he makes this comment, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well and keep warm and be well fed but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? And he uses that as an example of people who have, say they have faith, but there is no expression of that faith in any kind of measurable, tangible way. In other words, there's a connection, interestingly enough here, that if God is working in my life, that I am so impacted by the generosity of God, as Paul said to the Corinthians, he who was rich made himself poor, that we might experience the riches of God through saving grace. How can we therefore neglect people who are suffering? In fact, John would add in his first letter to the churches, written many years later, but along the same line, he says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And it's interesting, we get that backwards sometimes. We think, well, okay, now I'm going to show that I love God by being generous and being uh, benevolent to people who are without. No, he doesn't say that. What he says is when the love of God is living in you and you can come upon a need that you can respond to reasonably, you do because that's what's driving you. So that when I see something that I can do and I don't want to do it, that I'm being driven by something other than the love of God. It's kind of like God gives you this way of taking your own spiritual temperature that you can kind of measure what's really the truth about what's going on in my heart. Now, here's one of the things I think is one of the great downfalls for all of us. We worry endlessly about what other people think about us. And we fail to realize that most of the time they think very little of you because they're thinking mostly about themselves. But what really matters is not what someone else says about me or someone else thinks about me, but what really matters is what God knows to be true. And he's incessantly attempting to invade your life in a way where you let him speak into your life to you and call you to do what he wants you to do. That's so essential. It's the evidence, more than anything else, of a converted life. You know, I know when I look at a congregation of people anywhere, I know that there are at least three different kinds of people sitting in that room. There are those who are the Christianized. You know, they, they know the routine, they know the ritual, they know the words, they know that they, they've been Christianized, they've been raised in a Christian environment, and they get all that data and detail. Then there's those who have been convinced, intellectually they buy into it and saying, I believe it's all true. But there's a third category, which are the only ones that really get anywhere in terms of God and eternity, and those who have been converted. And converted people aren't simply people who have been changed, they're people who have been cured of this sickness called sin and death. They've been cured by the blood of Jesus Christ, and it has been such a 
powerful curative that in the same way a man who is dying from a disease who suddenly is healed and like the man at the beautiful gate jumps up, leaps and runs and praises God, immediately everybody knew this man has been healed, he has been transformed. How did they know that? Because before he was sitting on the ground crawling by his hands and elbows and now he is standing on two legs and he's leaping and he's jumping and he's praising God. Something good has happened in his life. And that's the whole point. The church oftentimes has multiples of people who can agree with everything and who can answer all the questions and check all the right boxes. They can meld in with the culture and feel comfortable, but they never are really changed because they've never really been cured. Do you know why when Peter said he's like a dog who returns to his own vomit? you know why the dog returns to his own vomit? You may want to get your pencils and papers out of here. <laughs> because he's a dog. And that's what dogs do. When the dog steps back and goes, what in the world am I doing? <laughs> why, what am I licking this stuff up? Yeah, I know. We'll say, well, you've seen the place that dog's tongue's been. That's the worst of it. That's not the worst of it. But the bottom line is something changed when he stands up on all two and says, that's, I don't even want to touch that. That's disgusting. We know something has happened to that dog. (laughs) And you better start giving him a place at the table. God changes people. And that's the only thing that changes people. Because without the cure, it never be changed. Well, that's why Paul himself would add into the conversation. He says, command those who are rich in this present world to be generous and willing to share. But secondly, Paul not only saw the practical need and couldn't close his eyes to it, But he was hoping to promote a unity when he goes on and says, pray that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there. You see, the best way to heal distrust that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles, especially in the church, was through the act of generosity. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says in verse 12, regarding speaking to Gentile believers, he says, this service, talking about the money that they were sending, that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, not only, not only just the practical, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. What happens when suddenly a Gentile gives them the monies that they need to buy food. They start praising God. They stop worrying about the source and begin to rejoice in the fact that God heard their prayers. He says, men will praise God for your generosity and in their prayers, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. And there becomes the key. Their hearts will suddenly open up to you and they'll be willing to walk in fellowship with you. We had a little campaign a few years ago, remember, with the t-shirts, Generosity Changes People. And the reason why we came up with that is because we made this observation, generosity changes people. (laughs) 
We see it all the time when, when somebody stops and, and stops their car when they don't have to and says, go ahead and go across, when they allow you to merge into traffic, even though it may put them behind schedule. When, when somebody says, uh, hey, don't worry about it, I'll cover that for you. When, these kinds of things that happen when people do little acts of generosity, it changes our perception of them because what do we begin to do? We say, there's a generousness in them and you know where true generosity comes? It comes from God. Oh, there are people who feign generosity. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but there's all sorts of businesses that give away free stuff. Come into our shop and we're going to give you this free stuff. But why are they asking you to do that? It's not because they want to give you free stuff. They don't have any other way to get you there to pay for the other stuff. We're used to that, and, and sometimes we're guilty of that ourselves. But the truth of the matter is, when somebody just does something without any purpose to manipulate or to take advantage or to promote themselves, they just simply say, my heart hurts over what you're going through. That generosity changes our whole relationship with them. And Paul was trying to bring healing into the church. Now, that's a little kind of a foreign concept today because we live in a form of Christianity that's not really, really all that nice to each other. And yet Paul here is seeing this huge schism between Gentile and Jew, and he's saying, if we do this, this has the chance. Pray, he says, in fact, to the Romans, that when I get there, it will be acceptable, that they'll receive the gift and say, praise God. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, it's amazing. Paul shows up with this gift. James and the other elders are all there. And he's, he's bringing them to a, a significant amount of money. And basically, that's when James issues this warning saying, Paul, we really appreciate this, but you have to understand, you're not safe on the streets. So let's do this. We have these men who are under a vow, and they can't break their vow until they pay the temple a certain amount of money, and they don't have the money. So would give them some of the money so they can pay your vow, and you join with them, shave your head just like they're shaving your head. You go through everything they're going through so that the Jews will see that you're still a good Jew. And so Paul says, okay, I'll do that. And he almost gets himself killed. It didn't really work out that well. But nonetheless, Paul believed and knew that generosity changes people. But thirdly, he did it because he said, when it's all said and done, there's a certain debt that's owed. And this is where he gets into, we go from the practical need to the, to the spiritual need of generosity to simply the fact that there are some things that we have a duty to do. In fact, he says in verse 27, the Gentiles owe it to them. <laughs> they owe it to them because he says, if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. And in saying this, Paul is really citing a, a, a biblical concept, a biblical principle that basically uh, he, he says even of himself to the Corinthians in this whole context in chapter 9. He says, if I have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap material harvest from you? The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So that he's simply saying we have to also understand that there are certain duties that are incumbent upon us as God's servants. It's interesting because the one thing that stands 
in the way of generosity in most of our hearts is something that we have difficult time admitting to. And it's called greed. The opposite extreme of generosity is greed. And, and generosity and greed can exist in varying degrees in our life. But I love what Dave Roper had to say about it in one of his books. He said, um, greed, he says, is a state of mind in which it is easier to forget God than any other. It's a state of mind that is easier to forget God. He says it destroys our natural appetite for God. And then he adds this little quip, I thought it was very clever. He said, money talks, but mostly it lies. Money talks, but mostly it lies. In other words, he said the problem is, is that we think in the possession of material things, the secrets of life's happiness are found. Now, if I were to ask every one of you individually in this room if you believe that were true, I guarantee you that almost all of you, I always leave an exception for those outliers, but almost all of you would say, well, money doesn't make for happiness. And at that moment I said, well, uh, why don't we try and find out? Give me all your money, and we'll measure next week whether I'm happier. <laughs> I mean, and your natural response is going to be, what? You're crazy? I need that money. And it's, it's such a powerful leverage in our life for both good and for both evil. I think that it's like someone once said many years ago when we were wrestling with the problems of television viewing, where they said, you know, be a family that owns a TV, not a TV that owns a family. And there's, it's the same way that be people who are financially responsible and mature and, and measured and self-controlled, but just make sure in being self-controlled and being good managers of what God's given you that you don't get owned by that and begin to think that your security is in money. And let me tell you when that becomes the toughest, and I speak this from experience, it's when you begin to see the windows of your life slowly closing off and you begin to look into the future, oftentimes the people who are most stressed about money are the people who are coming to the end of their earthly journey and are terrified that they're going to end up with not enough to make it to the end. And the sad thing is that David said something in the Psalms I think that we should really bank on. He says, I, I was young and now I am old. And I have never seen the righteous go hungry or their children begging for bread. In other words, God, God makes promises to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I will take care of the rest. That you don't have to lay awake at night worrying about how am I going to make it? How am I going to survive? Now, please, I'm not suggesting, therefore, give it all to the church. <laughs> unless you're thinking of me personally. No, I'm not, I'm not thinking, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the simply sitting back and saying, God, first of all, riches are uncertain. They're really uncertain. 2008 proved that to a lot of us, right? When we saw our 401s go to 201s, right? So we, I mean, they're uncertain. You can't, you can't bank on them. The entire system could collapse without anybody knowing it. I always like the guys who write books on why the economic system collapsed. 
they always write them afterwards. <laughs> Couldn't you, how about some of you could forecast? <laughs> and you do have forecasters, and most of them are whack jobs too. But the bottom line is, we don't know. We don't even know if you and I are going to be here sucking air by this afternoon. And that's why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he'll take care of everything else. He'll work out the details. Because, see, I don't know what the future holds. What I do know is that I am called by God to be God's servant, serving God's people for God's glory. And when I make that the focal point of my life, I tend to be a more generous man. I'm more generous with my time because I am willing to take the time to talk to somebody or spend time ministering to somebody, or going out of my way to facilitate something for somebody. Even though it doesn't fit into my calendar, I'm going to do it because God says, this is how you serve me. I'm going to find him doing that with my monies because I, I'm not going to look at my monies and say, these are my monies. I'm going to simply say, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for what I have and all that you've given me, but they are yours in the end of the day. As Corey Ten Boom said, I learned to hold very lightly to the things of this world, for I never knew when God would require them of me. And thirdly, I become generous with my energy. I mean, I serve the Lord with all my heart, soul, body, and strength. Then I, I have to confess something to you. There are sunny Saturday afternoons where I'm sitting in my study and saying, why don't I just jot a few things down and go out and enjoy the weather? This time of year is a real struggle for me to really say, you know what? I have an opportunity to say something to, on Sunday morning that could heal somebody's life in an eternal way. Could make all the difference in the world. God, deliver me from that self-seeking, lazy, sun-indulgent personality that just wants to find a white beach with warm water and sunshine. Forgive me for wanting to be that guy and let me commit myself to giving my utmost for your highest glory. So if you want to know, what can we pray for Pastor Ken next week? <laughs> well, I was thinking, first of all, the Ferrari, but let, just cross that off the list. <laughs> but secondly, you know, a, a Cayenne or Carrera would be fine too. No, <laughs> In fact, that list is really long. No, but that's one of them. God, don't let me give place to seasonal affected disorder. Because <laughs> you always end up sad. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would stir our hearts and our minds in a way that would be yearning and earnest after you. I know that as I'm saying these things today, there are some people who are going to be significantly disinterested in what I'm saying because maybe in reality they have just been Christianized. They've heard this so many times. It's like the lady who said to me, I don't like to read the Bible because it's just got kind of boring after a while. And I thought, oh, dear woman. <laughs> You may have been Christianized and know that it's supposed to read it, but you, you don't love God's Word because you don't know God. Or maybe, Lord, that there are people who believe it's true and convinced of all the facts, but they don't want to deny themselves. They want another path, and they're going to 
maybe even pretend that they're walking with you, but in fact, there's a path they're following that has nothing to do with you. They may put on the robes of religiousness, but in fact, their heart is far from you. They draw near to you with their lips. They may even raise their hands and worship and sing the songs, and, but they don't know you. They don't want to follow you. But I know, Lord, there, and I pray that most of us here are those who have truly been converted, that we've had an encounter with you that brought your healing. We have been cured of sin and death, and there's a yearning in us, Lord. And I just pray, Father, that we would begin to tattoo on our minds and our foreheads that I am God's servant, serving God's people for God's glory. Because out of that will come a generosity that will change hearts, change lives. Give us this grace, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue for a few more minutes, uh, worshiping God, whether that be through prayer or singing or meditation or contemplation or reflection or confession or whatever it is that is the necessary response for you tonight or this morning, I just pray that you would respond to God. That I, I find that that in the church today we are such a harried and busy people. We're, we're so caught into the pillar to post existence that the idea of just sitting and doing nothing for a few moments uh, feels like a waste of time, a waste of energy. And yet the irony is when we call waiting upon the Lord doing nothing, we have missed the point completely. There's nothing that you can do today or the rest of your life that's more important than the next few minutes that you just spend in the presence of God. Our Father in heaven is yearning for you and I to just take this moment to open our hearts as wide as my arms are open and saying, God, I want you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want you to take my life and use it for your glory. When we truly do that, then, when, then the elements that we partake of week to week become more than just elements. They become more than a sacrament and more than a religious observance or ritual. They become a statement of faith, an objective, measurable way in which I simply say to God, your body was given for me. Here's my body. I give it back to you. Your blood was poured out for me. I, your, your very life was shed for me. I'm laying my life out for you, Lord. Take it, Jesus. You can have all of me. Spend me. Spend my life the way you want to spend it on what pleases you. If you need prayer, myself and some others will be available up front to pray with you. But I just really encourage you on whatever level you're at at this moment, whatever circumstance you're in, that you would be one who responds to God and you give Him permission to work in your life. Because when you do, that's when you begin to see God working through your life for His glory.